Blankets, headphones, put my headphones on. All right, all right, all right, give it a year. You're listening to the Games Industry.biz podcast. I'm James Batchelor, and this week I'm joined by Matt Hundran. Brendan Sinclair, Rebecca Valentine, and Marie D'Alessandri. It is my favourite episode of the year, not just because it's the last one of the year, but because it's the games of the year. So it's the week that we definitely only get to talk about games rather than unpacking news and having to know what we're talking about on a a professional level. This can be a personal (laughs) level of knowing what we're talking about, which makes a nice break, I'll be honest. There is little to no need for an intro beyond that. We've been doing this for a good few years. We did something um, similar this last time I plug it. I promise we did um, our Games of the Generation episode uh, about a month back. Go back and listen to that for hear what we think was the best game or most impactful game or most disappointing game of the past seven years. But we're now just looking at the last 12 months. Ladies and gentlemen, who would like to go first? Someone who's actually played loads of games this year, probably. Me? Yeah. Okay, pick me, because I have, like, four things I want to talk about. <laughs> Maybe five. Like, like four and a half. Well, that's the hour done, then. Rebecca, go. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm detecting, that, detecting that one of us is more prepared than the others to, to get going on this. So. <laughs> yeah. You know, given the fact that I made us, like, 12 minutes late because I was making tea, mm. but whatever. Um, games I liked. Games I liked. I played, and actually... I'm I'm really excited because I know I know there's a game that Brendan's going to talk about, but I'm and I'm really happy that the series is going to get representation this year because I'm not actually going to write about it. Um, but I played Yakuza Zero at the beginning of the year, and holy moly, that is an incredible video game. Um, actually, it could technically qualify for Game of the Year because I think it came out on at least like one console for the first time this year. Um, Yakuza Zero absolutely blew me away. I have had so many friends over the years tell me that I should get into the Yakuza Zero series and that I should play Yakuza Zero, but it never, it never on its face seemed like something for me, right? Like, oh, it's a, it's like a, a Japanese crime drama, but it's sometimes silly and it's like a fight, like a beat 'em up kind of like action brawler sort of kind of thing. And that, wow, that does not sound like the kind of video game I like. Um, but my partner's really into Yakuza, and he got me to play it um, when I was when I was hanging out with him, and I I I burned through it in like two hours, and I I have never played I don't think I've really ever played played a game or I've not played many games that have so much like like spirit to them like that that game is so sincere and earnest um, it is. It is a story of the, this this fellow named Kiryu who gets caught up. Um, you know, he's he's part of the yakuza and he gets caught up in this you know much bigger thing. Um, and it, it it goes back and forth um, with the with these swings between this very serious emotional like like crime drama um, with with these really high stakes and these characters that you just fall in love with and come to care about so much. Um, but then it just like swings wildly to the other side and it's sub stories where everything is just silly and ridiculous and over the top and the dialogue is hysterical and the characters are constantly just being being ridiculous to one another and and making weird puns or or you know coming across just these very strange characters throughout the streets of this like very very small area called Camarocho um and i you don't think that a game could do that you don't think that a game could 
simultaneously manage to be this very serious emotive experience, but also be just just silly and ridiculous in the way it is. But Yakuza Zero lands and it succeeds, and it is it is just absolutely powerful and wonderful and good. And I think I think I've seen a lot of people getting into the Yakuza games this year for the first time. I think due to a combination of many of them suddenly becoming available on Game Pass, but also Yakuza Seven Like a Dragon coming out um, here recently, which I am also currently playing, but I haven't finished yet, and so I'm not sure if it would warrant Game of the Year discussion from me, but I do like it. Um, but it got me into the Yakuza series, and I think I think Yakuza 0, at least from what I've heard from other people and from what I've experienced so far, having now also played Yakuza Kiwami 1 and a little bit of Like a Dragon, I think Yakuza 0 might be the best one, but it's certainly like the best entry point if you were ever thinking of getting into the Yakuza series, and it is, it is mostly just a damn shame that that game came out in 2017 alongside absolute bangers like Nier Automata, Horizon Zero Dawn, Breath of the Wild, Mario Odyssey, uh, because that game should have been game of the year like a gajillion times. Uh, one quick question there. You said you burned through it in two in hours. Two hours. Yeah. Two, sorry, wow. <laughs> Have I Whoa, misunderstood something about the series here? Because that's like an intro cutscene, I think. I'm sorry that I said two hours. No, yeah. I meant two weeks, um, which was not enough time, honestly, because... Um, it has like these mini games. It has like these these management mini games. Like there's management sims, like whole things that could honestly be an entire mobile game unto themselves that are really enjoyable. Like um, a cabaret club management game, um, plus a like real estate management game. I did not have enough time to engage with those as much as I wanted to, but those are incredible. And hey, Sega, if you ever want to make either of those a standalone mobile game, I will give you money for it. I will pay you money. Yeah, I actually played. Uh, <clears throat> I played that game as well this year, and I think it is probably the best Yakuza game. Um, I so my history with the series goes back since um, uh, right to the release of the first game on PlayStation Two in two thousand and six or two thousand and seven. I was consumer facing journalist at that point, and I'd review games and all of that. And I I reviewed that game, and I reviewed Yakuza Two, um, and I remember like not quite. I could. I really enjoyed some parts of it, but I didn't quite. Uh, it didn't quite quick click with me. It's got a very specific pace. Uh, it has a specific, like maybe two or three different specific tones, and it kind of veers fairly sharply between all of them. Um, and so I kind of admired those games more than I loved them. I remember, you know, they were kind of like seven out of ten, eight out of ten, I think, for for the second game. But but like the, the one thing that I always really did enjoy was uh, the cutscenes, and that's really unusual for me to enjoy long cutscenes but they're incredibly well done it's it's effectively a gangster soap opera it's kind of uh sort of sopranos ish in the way that it it kind of has these very very tough men and isn't afraid to make them look silly or uh strange or kind of delve into kind of the little nooks and crannies of their psyches and so on and it's it's just a very very um well executed game on that level um and then i think i think one of the things i i i really don't know why i i turned a corner on it i mean like i say i i liked them before but i loved yakuza zero and i think i wondered about why that was and i think that part of it's just because the, the kind of the scope side of it and the, uh, you know, the open worldness of it, I think is really helped by being on newer technology. PlayStation 2 wasn't that great at rendering Camarocho in, in a way that was really, uh, 
was really appealing. Like, it was good, don't get me wrong, but like it's just that the hardware was more limited, whereas whereas these games are kind of beautiful now and the lights are brighter and it's bigger and the, the activities are a little more densely packed into the space. Um, which I, So I really loved all that. But this time I just really, I just enjoyed the general rhythm of the game much more because one thing about Yakuza is like you're, you're kind of racing around this, this network of streets, which is... Um, modelled on I think Shinjuku in, in Tokyo I don't think it's uh, Shibuya maybe it's Shibuya but either way like one of the nightlife districts of Tokyo so you have that kind of density and like the riotous signage and all that stuff but you, you're constantly being interrupted and having fist fights with everybody all the time and that that kind of bugged me it used to bug me but it didn't this time and I raced through it and I think also the setting it, it being set in the 80s and that period like the Japanese economic boom and and the period detail of all of that I thought was really brilliant as well so I would agree like I think I, I played the first three Yakuza's like on when they originally came out and this is the first one since then I, I it made me tempted to go back and play Kiwami which I think is a remake of the first game like I get a bit confused about about this uh, about but obviously there's there's so much Yakuza out there because there's also uh, I'm forgetting the name of the game I could try and find out but it's called something completely different but it's like in the Yakuza universe and it's made by the same judgment that's right yeah so there's even like like little offshoot games there's so much of it and like a Dragon is on my two playlist um, because there's just a lot of stuff on that list and I've already played a Yakuza game this year, but that was going to be a game that I brought up myself as well, actually. Yeah, I just finished Kiwami. Um, I, I think you're, it's not it's not as good. I mean, I think the writing is not as strong because it, like, it, it, it is a... Actually, I'm not sure. I think it's a re- I think it is a remake. Um, but they they hold pretty closely to the original. So some of the writing and some of like the plot pacing and stuff, I think, is still hindered by the fact that that Kiwami was just a game they were making and they had no idea that it was going to go as far as it did. Um, but I'm gonna play Kiwami two in the new year, and I hear that that is really really strong. They did add a bunch of new cutscenes to Kiwami that I think uh portray certain characters in ways that make a little more sense and help tie it more closely to Yakuza 0. So if you liked Yakuza 0, it's probably good to go back and play Kiwami 1 um because there's there's a lot more tie-ins and a lot more like context to it. Um, I did just want to, I, I don't want to like spend the whole podcast on Yakuza, but I did want to add, you were talking about how great the cutscenes are. When Majima makes his entrance in Yakuza Zero, I was, at, I was at my partner's house and we had just eaten dinner and I, ha- I think I had, I had like a piece of like, we had like dessert. I had like a piece of cake or like a brownie or like s- some chocolate thing in like sitting kind of on my knee. I was sitting on the couch and it started this cutscene to introduce Majima. And I had like, I had like a piece of cake um, on my fork and like like I was eating like watching this cutscene because it's a pretty it's a really long cutscene and it starts with just like some people kind of conversing at a corner and then like gradually moves and you you see Majima enter um, and from the part where he enters I had a piece of like cake on my fork and I just sat there with the fork like hovering in midair for the entire rest of the duration of the cutscene <laughs> because I was so entranced by him and and this just magnificent entrance and this wonderful cutscene they had made so amazing game Okay, so so that kind of uh, brings me to, to my personal pick for for game of the year, and that's uh, the Yakuza Like a Dragon, um, the new the new one that came out in November with the uh, Xbox Series S and X, and um, I I didn't I'm basically new to the series. I, I played some of the um, the zombie offshoot from you know eight years ago or so. Uh, and I played some of the early ones that Matt was talking about on the PS2, and they didn't grab me. This one, Like a Dragon, is, uh, I guess it's like, if what 
that they were talking about there for the first Yakuza games uh, sort of appeals to you. But if it were actually just a turn-based role-playing game in kind of a 3D open world setting. And because it's, it's just like such a completely wild shift for for the series to go from 3D brawler to turn-based role-playing game. Um, and they, they kind of, they build that shift into the story a little bit by making the main character like just a, a complete fanboy for Dragon Quest, which I love because Dragon Quest is not a Sega franchise. But they they completely lean into it and they own it for the the entire game, and it's it, it it's just such a Rebecca used the word sincere to describe it, and and that that really is just like the the beating heart of this game is that the the main character Ichiban Kasuga is a he's a naive flawed lunkhead uh which gives him plenty of room for for personal growth but he has this absolutely like unshakable moral compass like he's really grounded in in what he what he will accept and what he values and what he prioritizes and i i find that like I really liked that because it it, it it gives it gives the character like just that that feeling of depth where it's like okay I I understand this this character as a person and if you gave me a situation I would have a pretty good idea as as to how they would react in that situation even if it's not something that's been hinted at or or played at in the games and and the the tonal swings that it that it has from like just complete absurdity to to complete absolute you know po-faced melodrama it works it works like last night i i I beat the game after you know 60 70 hours or whatever and i'm still playing it because there's still more stuff to do in there and last night i i was faced with the decision of whether or not i wanted to spend four million yen to send my giant robot vacuum cleaner on a space tour because it was becoming disgruntled managing the mahjong parlor of my baked goods empire and i needed to make it happy that's just amazing and there's a quote for twitter I love it. That's, that told me the game more than anything you said before, I think. Yeah, that's that's what I'm doing. 70 hours into this organized crime drama. <laughs> and this is, you know, in, in, in between, like, just all these side quests helping out l- people that are really on, like, the outskirts and marginalized corners of, of, of society. And it's... The, the the view that the game takes, because um, it's centered around uh, burnouts and has-beens, uh, middle-aged protagonists for the most part, and it it views them and it views um, most of the the other sort of people on the outskirts of society with uh, with more more sympathy um, than than I'm I'm used to. I mean, there are certainly problematic elements of the game uh when you go around the city grinding basically to level up you're you're mostly beating up homeless people um some some yakuza and some you know uh gross business execs and and dude bros as well but a lot of homeless people and uh its treatment of women 
is just like this this giant stain on 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 the game i think just because there there are uh there are so few like really well realized women characters in the game the best it gets is like oh well here's a few that are like people in the game act as if they are badasses um but that's about it i mean one of them one of your your party characters uh the only you can have two women in your party uh one of them is completely optional in 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 the game and it's she's such an afterthought that you can when you get through the final you know sequences the cutscenes and everything where the entire party is facing down the the big bad antagonists like they don't even include her in those cutscenes she's just completely gone and and i mean that's sort of you know i i kind of understand maybe they're 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 thinking on on some of this and maybe it was rushed maybe they'll add it in but like it it just it reflects kind of like this this attitude toward women that's not great yeah i think but it's so much been, of the there's always been in the series to an extent up yeah. to up to yeah. now yeah that's not, that's a real bummer to hear because i'm i'm not super far in the game like i i just i'm in chapter 5 so i have Sayako. um and having her felt like a giant step forward for the series actually because some of it I do think can be, especially in the older games, some of it I think can be chalked up to trying to portray a very specific period of time um, in a very specific area with a very specific group of people. Um, and I, I don't I don't think that excuses like not not treating its women characters well. I think it explains it to some degree um, because there is a sort of periodness to the the roles that men and women were playing. but I it was. It was wonderful to see when I when I met Sayako um, to see a woman in a position give, given agency and given power um, because there there are obviously like different kinds of power that you know women can hold in this in this universe that they are trying to portray and Yakuza Seven takes place in 2020 when there are an awful lot more options um, for women and so that's that's really a bummer to hear that it doesn't really improve beyond Sayako. Yeah, but I, I it's still that that. Um, waffling between like absurdity and just completely heartfelt earnestness is I realized that that's sort of like kryptonite uh, to me with with video games like my my favorite game of of all time ZHP Unlosing Ranger versus Dark Death Evil Man uh, on on the PSP which I wholeheartedly endorse uh, and everyone should should play it even though no one did um, and some of my other, you know, like Metal Gear Solid 4 was my favorite game of the year and Metal Gear Solid 5 and, and Revengeance. Like I've got a soft spot for those games just because they can be like at the same time, you know, you're, you're going from from your protagonist character just breaking down about the plight of child soldiers around the world and just, you know, all kinds of like really awful real world stuff. And then the next minute, somehow they are crawling around an enemy base in a cardboard box with a sombrero on it. (laughs) And and it somehow fits. Well, the, uh, the weapons dealer have like a monkey with metal underpants that farts all the time as well in that game. I forget exactly, but just, yeah, utter absurdity. And, and like something about the, those, those, 
wild swings really works for me. Um, but yeah, I, I don't want this to turn into the uh, Yakuza podcast, even though we're 20 minutes in and it, it no, has. Yeah. But, uh, well, I would say, I mean, one, one thing I would say is the, the thing about Like a Dragon that I'm looking forward to is because <clears throat> I really like Zero, and, but the one thing about it that does, I, I, I just don't enjoy the combat enough to sustain me through 40, 50 hours of the game. And I, I, like, the, I, like, the diff- I like the sound of the different directions that they've taken that core kind of part of it. I think it would, I, I'm looking forward to playing it for that reason, because I think it, it, would, it would soften against all the other parts I, I, I've generally enjoyed a lot more. But yeah, probably best to make this, uh, bring another game into the conversation rather than just harp on about UK. this year I've actually played fewer games that I've played any other year really like I've found it difficult to finish games and I found find it easier to play um, happy games like <laughs> I played two very very depressing games at the beginning of the year like in the first half of the year and I'll get back to that later but generally my, my favorite games this year have been games that have been make me feel good because everything has been so grim um, so the first one I'm going to talk about uh, is Paper Mario Origami King because this game <laughs> it was like honestly a surprise for me I didn't like I, I like Paper Mario like I like the franchise I've always enjoyed them I think I've played them all but maybe not all of them actually anyway um, so I didn't have like any expectations really I just was like yeah that sounds fun and there was a lot of hate around this game before release and I, as a result I feel like it went a bit unnoticed or like I don't know it's been treated a bit unfairly in my opinion it it was judged before launch just because of like the legacy of the franchise and like I do understand that I guess it's only natural to go back to previous entries to review a new title but like for me there's nothing I didn't like about this game generally I I know a lot I saw earlier I was reading reviews just to remind myself a bit about stuff I liked about it and blah 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 and I saw people arguing that the whole combat system is fundamentally broken wait they said it was broken yes and i'm like i read that and i was like hang on a second did we play the same game because generally like i did have some frustrating moments but it also has some of the best boss fights i've ever seen in a nintendo game i guess or a paper mario game i don't know but when i read so many people talking about how the combat system is broken and how it's shit and i'm like I can't, I just generally don't understand. You must be a bit dead inside to not play that game. (laughs) Honestly, like, it brought me so much joy. With with video games, Janice, you can't entirely rule that out, uh, Marie, you know. And many of them have been worn down by years and years in this profession. I... I, I'm sorry. I just I got to talk about the the combat system because we call it a combat yeah, system, but it, it. it's it's a puzzle system, where you're yeah, you're sliding yeah. people around a board and lining them up into squares or straight lines so that you can hit them more efficiently. And it is like I've I've played so many puzzle games in the decades that I've been playing games, and this one was it was new and it was fresh, and it was challenging regularly all the way through the game. I, I just, I loved it. I'm sorry. 
Go on, Mark. Yeah, no, I obviously agree with you. Like, I, I thought the combat system was really great. And I know, I think some people just hated that it didn't have any RPG elements and, like, Mario can't level up and I'm like, I don't care, it's Mario. Like, people were like, the ba- battles are useless. And yes, they are because you don't level up and there's, there's no RPG mechanics and stuff. But I still did every single one of the battles same, that was same. offered to me. And I honestly didn't care about RPG element. Like... This game was just its own thing, and it just worked, and it is so well written, and it is so funny. It's honestly, I haven't laughed that much at a game in years, I think. And there's even like some hidden depth to it that I really didn't see coming, and I genuinely brought tears to my eyes. Little Bobby the Bobom story. <laughs> oh my god! Like that's what a about, gut punch, right? Like, I didn't expect this game to tell me about grief and stuff like that, and it's. A short section, right? But it's a very sweet way to talk about grief. And, like, this whole storyline was just excellent. I just love this game, really. It's just so good. It's so good. It's so good. So I've only played a grand total of one Paper Mario game, and it's not the Thousand Year Door, for which I am often ridiculed. Um, I have played Super Paper Mario on the Wii, and that is it. And I really enjoyed that one. I thought it was good. Like... I'm aware that this series does not require you to play every single entry to follow what's going on, but it does sound like, is this a good one to just leap forward and just forget all the previous ones and just play this one? Absolutely. There is literally no reason to, like, I mean, there is no reason to play the other Paper Marios to play this Paper Mario. I mean, you can play them on their own merits, but, like, like this is just, it's just a game about Mario going on an adventure. But what I mean is, like, compared to, like, having only played one Paper Mario, is this the one I should play, or should I track down another one because they are better? No, just play this one. Just play this one, yeah. It's great. Duly noted, right? Yeah. Adding that, adding adding that to my Christmas wish list, hoping that's not too late for Santa <laughs> to, uh, to to sort this out for me. Well, while we're on Switch games, I played one on Switch. It's not exclusive to Switch, but um, I've, I've got two games I want to talk about today. I've played a, I haven't played a great deal. I've played a, a, a few things. Um, kind of the standouts for me, just to kind of do honourable mentions. Hitman, as I discussed in Games of the Generation, is just incredible. Hitman 2016, Star Wars Squadrons, I absolutely adored. Um, just because it was finally a Star Wars game that was really good and reminded me of like the old Rogue Squadron games without being riddled with microtransactions or feel like a massive tutorial for a multiplayer mode that I am never going to play. Um, a Short Hike is amazing and is short, mm. and I still just like diving in and just wandering around the island. Uh, and I've been playing a lot of Moving Out, or as my four-year-old son insists... Oh, Moving Out is great. It's brilliant, it's brilliant. I, I must, it's so good. My four-year-old son, he couldn't see call it Moving House, and I am not allowed to play it without him. <laughs> so, uh, that's, <laughs> but that's, uh, that's a good one. But the one that I, I really stood out for me on Switch this year was... Um, I played Assassin's Creed Liberation. Now, I, I've, I've bored you guys with, with this um, before... I am not quite clicking with the big open world Assassin's Creed's of Origin onwards. Like, they're good. I recognise they're good games, but they're not what I want from an Assassin's Creed. I prefer the old, you know, focused on one city if possible, if not like, you know, smaller areas, focused on the assassinations, lots of parkour, lots of like blending into crowds. That's the Assassin's Creed I enjoy. The open world ones are fine, but there are like much better open world games that I enjoy more, and I'll get onto one of those later. Um, so they're just not for me. So 
in the run up to Valhalla, I thought I, I, I was really in the mood to try um, an old Assassin's Creed that I'd never played. And I think Assassin's Creed 3 Remastered was like, it was like £10 on Switch and it comes with Liberation. I thought, you know what, I have no interest in 3, but I hear Liberation's good. And I think this was around the time of a discussion around Ubisoft and the complete lack of female characters. I thought, ah, I've heard good things about this character. We'll give it a go. It is brilliant. Like, exactly what I want from an Assassin's Creed game. And it's a real shame that it was just a Vita spin-off rather than a full budget game. So... Obviously, you play it and it's old as hell, just purely by the nature of being, what, from 2012, I believe? Um, so, you know, the, the, the mechanically, it's a little clunky. But what you're doing, the storyline's great, Avalene's great, and the thing that really impressed me the most, and I'm, I'm surprised they haven't re- revisited this in later creeds, there's this great... I, I, how many people have actually played this here, by the way? Have any of you guys done Liberation? Yep. I have an action. Okay, I heard, it, I heard a yes from Brendan. I played it, um, yep. yep. But that means the vast majority of you are ignorant, so I can I can I can bore you with this. Um, <laughs> That's so a is, ignorant in the, in the technical sense. I'm a bit offended. In the literal sense Sorry. of not of genuinely not knowing, or ignorant as in like I don't know, in the, in the, in the, in Trump the, Trump supporters the, or something. In the literal sense of not knowing the system <laughs> I'm about to describe. So the vast majority of it is played like a typical classic Assassin's Creed. You're running around rooftops, you're stabbing people uh, when when prompted, you're into swashbuckling sword battles where countering is important, and Templar's Assassin's storyline, blah. The thing that I really liked and was not used is you... Aveline has three personas. So, yes, most of the game you can run around as as assassin Aveline, and she's running around rooftops, and she's got the hood on and the hat and the hidden blade and all this. But she also can disguise as a slave, because obviously this is set in New Orleans during like kind of the slave trade sort of era, which gives you access or at least gives you a lower profile in certain areas. And I believe you're like you're quicker and limbler, but you're not as strong in combat. And then Aveline is a lady. She's like a noble. She's son of a uh, sorry daughter, adopted daughter of a noble. So she has the lady persona, where she can wander around town, absolutely no suspicion at all, and she can like flirt with guards to get past them or she's got like a a poison dart thing in her umbrella and it's this really cool thing of like in theory you can approach situations or certain missions depending on the persona you are for that mission you approach it differently you either play it like a typical assassin's creed game or you have to be more cautious because you're a slave and therefore you're less protected or you have to be more subtle because you're the lady and you can't you can't suddenly be like running around on rooftops but you can you know charm guards and get past them and and it was really cool. The thing that I was disappointed by, though, is missions kind of tell you which one to be. There weren't any missions that I recall that you, it was like, right, I can at- approach this as the lady or as the assassin or as the slave. And I wish they'd been able to, they'd had like the, the trust and the budget and all this to explore that mechanic. And like, I'd love to see a bigger game, kind of on the scale of like Unity and Syndicate, where yes, you can run around as an assassin or you can disguise yourself as a normal person of the, you know, uh, you know, noble person or just an ordinary pedestrian or just the idea of an assassin who has different disguises kind of hitman-esque I guess different disguises different abilities depending on how you're dressed it was such a cool idea and yeah. it's, it's gutting that they they haven't revisited that in the series well it like it hints at this this idea of uh, really treating characters in an open world as having like class signifiers and how those class signifiers allow you they they make the world react to you differently right 
and this is one of the criticisms I've been hearing about uh, cyberpunk, is that like no matter what you choose or how you decide to look, the the world kind of treats you like a straight white male, hmm. um, and and it doesn't it doesn't really get into the you know like if if you are uh, transgender then or if your character is transgender the world just doesn't it doesn't play into their identity at all and and in a lot of games like that that sort of you know this is the hero this is the protagonist everything around the world is you know bending to their whim is kind of like uh, this is not really game of the year podcast stuff but like that that view is sort of inherently uh leaning towards the privileged status quo and and in a lot of these open worlds like that you know that's going to be for the developers that's going to be sort of the like white male position i think so yeah i really liked that that in liberation the way that that mechanic like kind of hinted at a sort of greater potential there and and i wish that they had explored it a little more it's a good game, though, especially for the PSP. Like, yeah, that was massively. impressive on the PSP. Yeah, I, I, I got the sense that this... It's a fully-fledged Assassin's Creed game, and, like, I got this... And, all right, that's, that's less amazing in 2020 when we're playing it on the Switch, and I can play, you know, Doom Eternal and Skyrim on my Switch, but I can imagine, yeah, back on the PS, PS Vita. Was it PSP or PS Vita? I'm, I'm actually just looking that up right now, because the timeline... I, I Vita think, should have I'm been pretty out sure now. it was Vita. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was Vita. Even so, like that, that's that's just it was really impressive. It's, it's a yet another title that makes me feel guilty for for not really giving my Vita the time it deserved. They're never going to bring that mechanic back or re- explore that style of game in the Assassin's Creed franchise anymore. But I would absolutely love an indie, um, because let's face it, Ubisoft's not going to do it. An indie to kind of do like kind of a spiritual successor with like a you know, class based kind of assassin system, something like this. I basically need a Liberation Two. Someone, please. I think I, I mean the problem I've got is that and this will build up to the thing I actually think is my game of the year but pretty much I went through my my console accounts and I haven't played that many games this year I think we've had like a bit of a tough year on team and in general there's been lots of big stories to cover and problems at our own uh, our, our company that have caused a lot of stress and strain I haven't always retreated into games um, but I have played a lot of older games uh, so I don't want to talk about all of them but I played some things that have disappointed me a bit uh, Borderlands 3 Jedi Fallen Order would be two of the ones that really haven't didn't quite uh, live up to, to what I imagined or hoped that they would be but I think one of the, the things I have played, which you've just mentioned, Batch, which I really did enjoy, was uh, Doom Eternal. Um, I know that games where you shoot loads of monsters to a heavy metal soundtrack aren't exactly the primary choice among the members of this team, but I, I do like the odd one of those. Um, I don't actually generally like games that are as frantic as Doom Eternal. Another game I played for the first time this year was um, Metro Exodus, uh, which is much um, 
has a more sedate pace. There's definitely plenty of monster shooting, but it's a bit more survival horror in its leanings, and there's big open spaces, there's long periods of time where you're not doing very much, and it's extremely well done. I really, really enjoyed that. But Doom Eternal is a very video gamey kind of game. It has systems that that link your your movement and how frequently you shoot uh, and kill monsters to your ability to recharge special attacks and regain your health. And the amount of monsters just means that the gameplay flow is very, very distinctive. And redolent of the original Doom, which, you know, if you're as old as I am, and there are, well, there's at least one, but one other person on this call who's basically as old as I am, remembers playing the original Doom when it came out and that, that feeling of, of speed and how... Um, yeah, how smooth that gameplay was and, and how quickly you had to think and react. It, it is different. It is much more complicated, uh, complex in terms of its systems. I mean, by, by necessity, that the hardware can do so much more now, but it really recaptures that feeling. I, I played a bit of the first Doom, but I played all of Doom Eternal and I thought it was uh, pretty wonderful. Um, it's, it's uh, yeah, I, the aesthetic will put some people off, but I actually think just the way the gameplay is, the the mechanical, the, how tight the mechanics are and the way the systems work together. I think a lot of people that just appreciate good gameplay would still be able to get into it. So I was very impressed with, with that particularly. Um, I, I don't bat, bat you mentioned playing on Switch. Was that just uh, an example or have you actually played this game on Switch? Because it is a really beautiful game and I really struggled to see how it could possibly work on, on Nintendo's hardware. No, that's just an example. I know. I know it can be played on Switch. Mm. I haven't. I'm not. I'm not a massive Doom person. It's like even the, even the original holds no kind of wonder over me. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it played it principally because you know Microsoft spent loads of money on Bethesda, and all of a sudden it appears on Game Pass, and you know you can't really can't really pass that up, particularly in a year where I've played as few games that were released this year as that. I mean, it's, it really is down to. Maybe that, Assassin's Creed Valhalla, I'm mean, kind of in the middle of and, and, you know, liking, but like most Assassin's Creed games, just running out of energy with it um, about a third of the way through. That's kind of a thing there. But beyond beyond Doom Eternal, really, that a lot of what I've played that I've really, really liked has been older games. I played it near Automata for the first time this year, which I thought was brilliant. Um, I played Hitman 2, which I thought was brilliant. I played Dead Cells, which I thought was brilliant. Uh, I played Yoku's Island Express, which I thought was lovely. Um, just loads of games that are just older, but they're all on, all on Game Pass, and like more on that later. But uh, I'll chuck another one in because I think the, the game that I enjoyed my time with the most of all this year, and I am aware that we kind of uh, we're kind of chewing through the time here. So this will be my final like uh, actual game that I'll talk about for now. Oh no, I still have some. Well, I have, yeah. <laughs> well, tell you what, how about I'm like keenly aware. Fact that I spent like ten minutes on Yakuza Zero and now like have many other games that I want to. All right, well, we'll do we'll do a quick hits on Rebecca's after after I've done. But I played a Plague Tale, which was a game that I was only like vaguely aware of until uh, this year. Like I knew it had come out. I knew it was from the Sobo Studio, which is. Didn't they do something with like Microsoft's AR glasses or something? I, th- I think that's how I first became aware of a Sobo Studio, and then that they since worked on Flight Simulator as well. Uh, but very uh, unusual studio in how wide ranging their work is, but sort of classic work for hire in that way. But this seems to be a an IP that came straight from them. It's a French studio. This is a story set in medieval France. Uh, it is. I mentioned Metro earlier. One of the one of the things about Metro when that first Metro 2033 was first uh, released, 
something that, that you kind of had to do was play it with Russian language and English subtitles and it just lent atmosphere to it and like the voice performance was so much better very much the case with the plague tale I, I didn't really try it because I'd, I'd read to do this before I started playing but um, the the French the French voice performance seems extremely good um, and Maria since confirmed that it is in fact it has a little it has a, a, a young child character that wasn't just unbelievably annoying which is very um, very unusual for a game and I just thought Amicia the the, the the lead character was, was a brilliant lead character as well. And I just, full of really good characters, actually. And I played it around the time that uh, the kind of the big, you know, online hoo-ha about game length was playing out. And uh, this was just a perfect game to play at that time because it is, I, I don't think you could spend longer than 15 hours playing this game. Um, it doesn't use any one idea to the point where you get bored of it. It's always introducing something new. It has, the locations are kind of fairly tight spaces, but it's a very good looking game and everything's atmospherically designed, like the, the, the way it captures the, the, the time period and the play and the sense of place is great. And it just, you know, it, it doesn't do, it's not pushing any boundaries. It's not setting any new standards. It's just extremely well-made, extremely entertaining, genuinely uh, like, emotionally affecting well-told story um i just yeah loved it um wouldn't wouldn't necessarily be on it and actually though so it wouldn't necessarily be on anyone else's game of the year list i think it just resonated with me at the time but i actually saw quite a few people on twitter i think i played it more or less well fairly quickly after the lockdown started um and I saw quite a few people. I remember Matt Piscatella, uh, the MPD analyst, was was talking about how much he was loving it and he couldn't believe he'd missed it when it first came out. Tom Phillips from Eurogamer was doing the same thing. I think a lot of people found their way to this game uh, as a result of a combination of lockdown plus Game Pass. And this is the kind of game that does slip you by uh, when there's so much else around. But I'm really, really glad I, I managed to find my way to it. And I think out of everything I played this year, I haven't enjoyed anything as much as I've enjoyed a plague I think it's definitely one of those like underrated gems that people have not necessarily noticed when it first came out. Um, full disclosure, I actually didn't finish it for some reason, but I did enjoy, I think I played like eight hours, so a fair bit. Um, and it's, it's genuinely wonderful. It's really great. And like from a more personal, personal perspective, I, it made me realize how little I actually play games in French. And the, as you mentioned, the voices in French are actually really good. And they're not in English because I did play yeah, in English for in some English. reason. Sure. <laughs> they're not like, I don't want to diss on their work or anything. But yeah, I, the French voices are really, really great. And it was genuinely just great to play through a game in French made by a French studio. And it, yeah, it's a really good game. I should really finish it. And I think it, it, it's one of those games that... I'm glad, as as you mentioned, that more people seems seem to have discovered it this year because of lockdown and and other reasons. And yeah, it's good. Yeah, and I think it's just been evidently some good years for a Sobo studio. Like they had that. I think that's a that that's a game that was initially released in 2019, and this year they have Flight Simulator, which is unquestionably one of the highest praised uh, games of this year. So it's they've had a really good couple of years uh, on their part as well. Let's cycle back around to Rebecca then, and we are 40 minutes in, so I reckon we should crack on, focus on our, our big favourite if we can choose one. All right, all right. I'll, I'll go really quick, real quick shout-outs, because I have, like, I mean, I have, like, a top ten list. I played a lot of games this year. 
Um, I played a lot of Ring Fit Adventure. Love that. Uh, actually still playing it, uh, which I'm proud of. Uh, I really liked a, co- a couple of like kind of smaller indies that I don't think are going to get as much love on Game of the Year lists. I really want to shout out Wide Ocean Big Jacket, which is like an hour-long little camping trip with these two kids and two adults where they just have conversations about life and their relationships and it's just really good writing and like absolutely worth an hour of your time um i played a lot of genshin impact that's not an indie but i played a lot of genshin impact um i played at the very beginning of this year i played this game called the longing which i would not shut up about on social media it's a game about this little like shade dude uh who is he's he's created as the servant of this underground king and told um to wait for 400 days while the king sleeps and regains his power and at the end of the 400 days the king will awaken and end all longing and the game has a real-time timer that goes down for 400 days while you whether you are in or out of the game and you can explore this cave network you can sit in his little shade house and wait for 400 days um there are ways to speed up the time so i actually did beat the game and i got a very good ending uh but i think it is extremely it was, it was a wonderful game it had like all these like really wonderful themes of you know waiting for something that you don't know about um sort of you know taking charge of your own destiny uh patience um you know finding do, doing your duty versus um you know trying to f- seek out your own happiness um it was really wonderful i think it is deeply ironic that i beat a game about sitting underground by yourself and waiting for a really long time before the pandemic before the pandemic <laughs> even kicked in um <laughs> i'm sad that isn't going to get more noise this year um i blaze ball's great can't wait for that to come back a uh, weird little web browser game where you bet fake money on uh, simulated games of weird baseball with weird rules and ai players um absolute joy of a community game um that i i can't wait to see come back in the new year and see where that goes um moon rpg on the nintendo switch uh actually from the 90s came real close to writing about it for my game of the year this year um really just stellar writing it's an anti-rpg where you follow the hero around and save the souls of the monsters that he kills um but just really really stellar writing absolutely fantastic soundtrack i got to interview the composers this year and whoo boy that's some really good music um that game is actually on sale on the nintendo switch eShop right now and if you like rpgs at all especially if you liked undertale i highly recommend moon um but my actual game of the year i don't even need to talk about for too too long probably because i i hope that marie might actually yes. discuss it with me <laughs> um animal crossing new horizons i didn't want to write about Animal Crossing because I I tend to like highlighting smaller games that I fall in love with, but I I realized the other day I was I was watching the Game Awards um, and they they played their their they had that medley of music for the Game of the Years um, and they they played through the whole medley and it's like you know Doom and The Last of Us and Hades it's all this dark music the whole time and then suddenly just like this burst of sunlight this orchestra starts playing the New Horizons theme and I just like started tearing up and it made me so happy and then the next morning I opened up my game and it was snowing and it snowed and I could build a snowman um, and I just. I love that game so much. I've put nearly 500 hours into it. I'm still playing it. That game is a freaking ray of sunshine in this year. It makes me happy. It is it is not like it is not these giant moments. It is small discoveries and small little things that make you smile or delight. Um, I mean, even little things like they recently updated it. So now you can sit on the ground. That is such a simple 
dumb thing. Like, you know, why would that make everybody so happy? But the the very the very act of seeing one of your townspeople sitting there, you know, eating a popsicle or reading a book and just being able to sit down on the ground next to them and just share a moment with this happy virtual character. It's just so it feels good. It's so uplifting and it's it's so many little moments for the sake of those little moments. Like there's not there's kind of an end game you can reach in Animal Crossing New Horizons this time around, which involves like bringing KK Slider to your island. Everyone obviously did that within the first like couple weeks because we were all it was like right when the lockdown started. Um, but it, I really don't think that sort of reaching those giant goals is the point of Animal Crossing or the joy of Animal Crossing. I I have found, and I, I did this with New Leaf as well, but I think New New Horizons realizes it in a way that none of the other Animal Crossings quite quite got to. Um, but I think it really is just doing small pleasant things for their own sake for these virtual characters i'm i'm in a situation we're all in a situation right now where i mean yeah there are obviously things we can do to better the world you know just from where we are but but it's harder to have those day-to-day moments with other human beings where we can reach out to them and be kind to them and so in a way animal crossing is sort of like this weird little kindness simulator where you can just you know help out your neighbors and say nice things to them and have them say nice things to you back um and and create this pleasant environment for them to exist in and for you to exist in and just like a nice a nice place to go where you can like smile a little bit and 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 feel good and feel accomplished um, because you you did one thing like maybe you maybe you grew a flower that you had never grown before or maybe you you built a new house or or set up a little like cozy spot on your island that wasn't there before um, it's just man it's making me so happy I'm like really I'm like tearing up talking about it because the game makes me so happy it just does and, it, and I'm gonna keep on playing it I'm gonna you know I'm I it's the holidays are going to suck this year. I'm not, I'm going to be by myself for basically the entirety of the holidays, but I'm going to invite some friends over in Animal Crossing and maybe count down the new year together um, and, you know, celebrate Toy Day. And yeah, I don't know. I I don't know when I'm going to stop playing Animal Crossing, but I don't, I also don't know when or if it's ever really going to stop making me happy. I'm sure, even, I'm sure eventually I'll stop, but. I don't think it can. It's just like you, you just described it perfectly. I think when you said it's just a place to go and you can smile for a little bit while you're in that universe. And I feel like that really sums up how I felt about this game as well, which is also my game of the year. Like if I only had to pick one, it would. I think it would be this one too. And it's just, yeah, it's brought me so much joy as well and so much happiness. And I really needed that this year. And like I played fewer games this year because like my mental health was in the bin and also because I played 355 hours of Animal Crossing so like it's difficult to fit any other game in there um but it's honestly super like surprising to me in a way because I never really played Animal Crossing before and it's just a game that when I tried it in the past it just didn't really work with my very very impatient nature like I would just get annoyed at having to wait for stuff I don't like waiting for stuff but in Animal Crossing you do need to do things at the game's own pace, like you have to wait for your flowers to grow or for whatever. And despite loving games like Stardew Valley and stuff that has a similar type of appeal, it's just, I just always felt like there was nothing to do in Animal Crossing. But like, I really need this nothing to do this year. (laughs) And it's, as Rebecca said, it's all in the little moments as well. It's just, I don't know, it, it did wonders for me this year. It was a routine to look forward to in the morning that would generally get me out of bed because I would look forward to spending that time in the game with the characters, the villagers and stuff. And 
it's the gift that keeps on giving. Like, I've played it, as Rebecca said, like, many, many, many hours, and I will still continue to play it, and I still look forward to playing it, like, almost every day, especially at the moment, because it's snowing, and I love snow. And it's just absolutely wonderful. I don't know what else I can add about it, to be honest, but, yeah, everything it's, Rebecca said. Yeah, I'll, I'll echo it. Uh, it. It does this really amazing job of keeping you engaged over the long haul without, like putting a lot of pressure on you to do that other than a few like you know seasonal events or something where you oh i gotta i gotta get this done by by the end of the week um there's very little like coercion (laughs) to get you to come back Mm. in animal crossing and uh yeah it's 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 an approach that i because i haven't played animal crossing before that I personally haven't seen in, in games, and I appreciate it. I think there... I'm sorry, I'll, I'll maybe end on this note unless someone else has something to say about it. I think I think Animal Crossing sort of touches... On, on a triple-A level, I think that there are very few games out there that sort of tap into just this desire for joy, right? And I don't necessarily mean that there's a lot of violent games out there, which there are, but I it goes beyond just like the difference between violence and nonviolence, right? Like animal crossing is sort of at a triple a high budget level, reaching for a type of joy um, that can be derived from games that not an awful lot of games reach for. Um, And I, it's proving that there is a huge market for that. And I, I don't know. I don't really know what other games in, I guess that genre would look like aside from just being copycats of animal crossing. But I, it, it always reminds me that I want to see more games that exist purely to make me feel happy. Um, and that's, that's sort of the other reason why I ended up settling on it from a game of the year, because the question I always ask myself is what game made me the happiest this year? Um, because that's, that's all I look for in games is I, I want to spend, I want to feel happy when I play a game. If I don't feel happy when I play a game, then I usually don't sit with it for very long, but animal crossing 500 hours later is still making me really dang happy so you know that's 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 it game I just wanted to briefly touch upon is Astro's Playroom because I loved it so much and I think expectations were a very important factor here because I thought it was just a tech demo that came with the PS5 and I just didn't even intend to play it until a friend told me oh you should really do that first before starting any game and I'm so happy I did that it's just wonderful Uh, really like made me feel like next gen was there like really showcasing what the DualSense the PS5 controller can do it's just so nice. It's an absolute love letter to PlayStation, and I've been a PlayStation person my whole life, so that was really lovely. And yeah, it's great. I loved it. Play it. Whoever has a PS5, but I think I'm actually the only one here. <laughs> Brendan, uh, Brendan's got one. And Brendan, oh yeah, of course. Brendan was no, a little yeah, bit you, cooler on it, though, weren't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. I forgot about that. I, I liked it. it. It seemed like an attempt to, to kind of cultivate the nostalgia that Nintendo does a really good job of, but... I've been playing so many uh, Mario games, like Mario Odyssey, Mario Galaxy, like and going right to the um, the Astro thing from that. It's kind of like, yeah, the platforming's not not quite as 
distilled pure joy. So somehow it didn't. It's cool though. It's clever. Yes, it is clever, and I do agree with. Like we talked about this, and we're talking about how comparing it to like Mario Odyssey, for instance. It obviously doesn't compare because, like, some Mario games have done so many good things about platforming that this doesn't work as well. But I think it's more like the nostalgia thing that you mentioned that really worked for me. I just didn't, and I also I had no expectations. Like I was like, oh, cool, a free game. I guess I'll play a free game. I actually paid for the PS5, so it wasn't free technically, I guess. But yeah, I really enjoyed that, that nostalgia and that, the, all of that, that was the Easter eggs and stuff. I thought that was lovely. And uh, what else did I want to say? The Room VR. I know I'm probably, I, like, I don't talk about VR that much, but I do play a lot of VR games, and the Room VR was generally a highlight of my year because I love this franchise, and bringing it to VR was just the perfect fit, and I loved it so much. I have to talk about Baldur's Gate 3 because obviously I do. I thought that Lion absolutely nailed their early access so far, and how they're approaching communicating with their community and implementing changes in the game, and that's been absolutely lovely. And in this case, I did have a lot of expectations, and... Like, it was perfect. I, I mean, I'm probably biased at this point, but I still loved it. Whatever. And last but not least, I guess, uh, completely different note. I did play The Last of Us for the first time this year and did play The Last of Us Part 2 when it came out. And there's a lot to unpack about these games, which is why I'm not going to dwell on it now. But, yeah, it's just very amazing game, very impactful game. Heartbreaking, I would say, even... I cried a lot. I think it's just like never a sequel of a game had me question the entire experience of its predecessor. And I think that's really the thing that I thought was really interesting about The Last of Us Part 2 because it makes you like, it invites you to reflect on notions like good and evil and self-destruction and guilt and grief and anger and all that type of things. And I thought that was interesting. Having said that, that game was made uh, on crunch and that is bad and you should not crunch even for a very good game. And that will end on that note <laughs> <laughs> it's a good yeah. note to end on yeah I, I Last of Us 2 is the, the game I regret most not having played this year because <clears throat> I, I definitely like uh, I, I, games are a curiously great medium for reflection on things like anger and violence and all that because it's such a core part of what games have been for such a long time very few games really have done it with any kind of skill um, and that seems to be a new high watermark but my PlayStation has been in my brother's house since the start of lockdown and it doesn't seem very likely that I'm going to get it back anytime soon <laughs> so you know I'll get I'll get to that game eventually um, I, I the thing the, the note I wanted to end on was not a game specifically uh, though I did say Plague Tale is the game I've enjoyed the most it, you know that that would probably stand I think it's more just that my the way I play games has completely changed this year for the aforementioned reason of having kind of lent my brother my PlayStation at the start of the lockdown and not really having been able to get it back since um, it's left me with, with an Xbox um, but Game Pass has kind of dictated all of my playing habits for the entire year um, and it I mean, I, I reeled off a list of games that I've played this year and they're all on Game Pass and the reason why I played them is because they were put in front of me and I had access to them and that's allowed me to play big, impressive, you know, big AAA games like Hitman 2 and Doom Eternal and Gears of War 5, all of which I enjoyed, Metro Exodus as well, enjoyed that too. It's allowed me to play indie games which had slipped me by, Dead Cells, Yoku's, uh, that kind of thing as well. And I just... 
I don't know. Like, I think it would be interesting to see what happens next year because I'm likely to end up with a PS5 and, and just to see just how much of my time is taken up by Game Pass again. But it does really feel like that that kind of that way of playing games, that way of being presented with games, really, really suits me. It almost, my, you know, part of my job is to know what's coming out, and I do. But spending the money on, you know, spending sixty pounds on on a brand new game does seem like more of an ask when you've got Game Pass sitting there, and there is so much on it, and there's more being added to it all the time. I mean, I played most of these games before the whole EA catalog was added to it, before the Bethesda deal went through. You know, it's getting more and more and more populated, and it it does really feel like you could spend all of your game free gaming time, which isn't which isn't unlimited. You know, like I when when it comes to investing dozens of hours into a game, I have to make my choices carefully because we, we don't really play very many games during our working day, if, if any at all, on most weeks. So a lot of this is, is in your own time. And you know, as Marie said, when you sink 300 hours into one game, there isn't really that much time for any others. So, you know, you, you have to make those choices carefully. But Game Pass just allows you to do that with, with a, a bit more comf, com, uh, consequence-free way. Like I... I put a little bit of time into all kinds of different games this year. Um, you know, um, Prey being an example of one of Mark Ains' Prey, which seemed like a great game, but like it didn't quite grab me and I moved on. But there was a time when that would have cost me £40 uh, to have that experience. Um, so Microsoft has been saying, you know, that the game sales go up with Game Pass. Well, I'm here to say that didn't happen with me. Uh, I didn't really buy almost any games this year for exactly that reason. It's not because I'm getting them for free. It's because Game Pass is plenty. Um, and yeah, so it's that reminds complete. me of. Uh, sorry, that reminds me of, of Valve saying that uh, Steam helps physical retail sales of PC yeah. games. Yeah, <laughs> it doesn't doesn't make any sense on the face of it at all. And but like in practice, I think. Maybe there are kinds of games where when they disappear from Game Pass, you might be inclined to buy them. But, but a lot of games you can have more as much as you need in the time that you've got them on there. And I just think it represents something good, broadly speaking, um, at least from the consumer side of it. it what, what it represents for developers is still um, untold, but it's completely revolutionized the way I think about what to play this year to the point where it feels like the thing I played this year was Game Pass not any of the individual games that I played through it I'm going to wrap us up with my game of the year I think I can get away with this one because technically technically it did come out this year albeit only on Steam Chris picks Sea of Thieves every year you can that is true (laughs) that is true and he's not here to defend himself this week so screw it if Chris can do Sea of Thieves two years in a row I can do a 2017 game in 2020 my game of the year is Horizon Zero Dawn. Th- yeah. That game is utterly superb. It's, and I'm going to try not to just talk in hyperbole about that. I'm going to actually get into reasons why it's superb. I think that's going to go down as one of the most unfortunately timed releases ever because it came out like a few weeks before Zelda Breath of the, Win- uh, Breath of the Wild. And obviously Breath of the Wild is better in different ways, but in its own ways, Horizon Zero Dawn, I think, re- it represents the peak, if not a peak, of this open-world action genre that the entire AAA industry is shifting towards. I'm going to start with just simple things like the setting. The fact that it's an apocalypse. Apocalypses just don't interest me in, in video games anymore. Like, Fallout did it brilliantly. Like, that, that's the apocalypse I like. But it's 
we have so many kind of, oh, look, everything's ruined. There's crumbling buildings and, you know, oh, look, destroyed cars conveniently block off our route that way. There are so many dead worlds that we have in video games. Like your, your typical apocalypse is a world that is largely devoid, devoid of life because that way it's easier for the... Um, the developers to not have to render everything that's alive. Um, this is a living post-apocalyptic world. Um, like, you know, there's just the sheer amount of wildlife and the, the beauty of the nature around it. And yes, there are some sections that have crumbling buildings, but you spend the vast majority of it in the kind of the wilderness. And it just, it felt like a very different type of apocalypse. This tied in with the story. The story I found absolutely fascinating. I'm not going to spoil for anyone, for the, for, just in case there are people just as ignorant as me who hadn't played Horizon Zero Dawn until this year. Like, within you get a kind of a prologue. And within that, there are so many questions raised. And... I just it just made, drew me into the world, and I wanted to know more about Aloy, the character, and I want to know more about this world and how it's set up and the characters around her. And every time you do like a main a main mission, I'm used to games. I can't name specific examples, but I'm used to games where like right they they throw you a big mystery at the start of the game, and it's not until like forty hours later that you find the answer. This felt like every time you did a main mission, it gave you an answer. But then it posed another four or five questions and it drove you on to like the, the quality of the writing, the pacing of the story was fantastic. But I think a large part of why I liked it was the combat. Most games or most games that I play, certainly in the AAA space, the combat largely boils down. If you just if you ignore all like the cool combos and actually look at what you are doing, the combat boils down to hit it until it's dead doesn't matter how you hit it just hit it until it's dead this felt a lot more strategic particularly when you're up against the bigger monsters so each each of the robot dinosaur things has different components and you can just you know throw every weapon you've got at the body but if you study each breed each one's got a weakness and not like a flashing glowy point like a zelda boss you know zelda boss of the olden days like Simple example, the I think it's the groundbreaker, this giant like iguana-like moling, uh, mole-like robot that can dig underground and come up underneath you. If you keep attacking the claws and you, you dismantle the claws, it then cannot dig underground, so that defeats an attack. If a another robot can fire fire you know, shoot fire at you or ice, you simply take down that canister and that removes its attack. And you're you're systematically kind of working out how to weaken your opponent, not just watching a health bar go down, but working out how to prevent it from harming you in the ways that it is to make it easier for you to defeat. And every game, sorry, every big battle felt like a challenge. There were there were battles I had against monsters that in any other game could have been a boss fight, but this is just, I happen to be riding from one place to another and oh my word, a large thunder jaw or a storm bird has attacked and that's it. Here we go, 10, 15 minutes of working out how to take this thing down it just it felt it it was a much more satisfying combat system because i felt like i had to be on my toes not just right dodge until my my health is uh, regenerated then just j jump back in and spam the attack button as often as i could there was just so so much i loved about this game um it wasn't too long for an, an open world i think i had it done in about 20 hours but for me that's a good length i did do some side quests but i didn't have to do all of them it was just it was it was a really well put together game. The fact that it's Guerrilla Games' first open world action game, like you honestly would not tell that this is the first time that studio has tried that genre of game. They nail it first time. 
And I cannot wait for Horizon Forbidden West now. That's going to be the game that gets me to buy a PS5 now. Um, so yeah, Horizon Zero Dawn, I heartily recommend if you have not played it. Welcome to the Game of the Year podcast 2017 or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we had Yakuza Zero. Yeah, we had Yakuza Zero's 2015, uh, Plague Tales 2019, Horizon Zero Dawn is 2017, 2018 probably actually, uh, to be fair to that. No, Yakuza Zero was 2017. Uh, I thought it first came out um Japan or something in 2015. Anyway, well, yeah. yeah, but we wouldn't have. Yeah, it's all, it's all pretty old games, but yeah. Such is the nature of listening to a podcast with a bunch of business journalists talking about games, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> Looking forward to uh, our Game of the Year podcast 2023, when our 2020 games will be the best yeah, games of the I'll, year. I'll give you my report on The Last of Us Part 2. Uh, <laughs> I remembered midway through this podcast that I beat D- Divinity Original Sin 2 this year because Brendan named it as his game of the year last year. Um, and that game came out in 2017. It's a good game. It's a good, it's good game. game. I was ahead of the curve. You were. <laughs> 2017, clearly a good year. Um, it has not been a good year for many reasons, but it is nearly over. So to you, dear listener, we do hope that the rest of 2020 treats you well, that you have a good holiday with your family and your loved ones if you can, restrictions permitting. And generally, we look forward to chatting to you all in 2021. If you're bored over the holidays, you can go back and listen to all our previous episodes on your podcasting platform of choice, including, of course, the five games of and the Game Developers Playlist uh, spin-off shows. We have a five games of in the bag. I need to edit that and get that ready. We'll probably have that the week you come back. We have the five games of Jesper Kidd coming up, the uh, composer behind many, many games, but we managed to get him to boil it down to five. Uh, beyond that, you can get your news, insight, and analysis into the world behind video games at gamesindustry.biz. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs> <laughs>